Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 8. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to a new year. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, subscribing, rating, reaching out, sharing, talking about how this impacts you. It's fun to find you here. It's fun to find you on social media and in my inbox. It's also a really fun for our team just to be encouraged who are part of making this podcast possible. And hey, if you haven't yet joined the Digital Church Facebook group, you can be part of the conversation, be part of the community. There's a link down below. There's over 600 of us now from all over the world, really, who are sharing resources and just connecting as a community who care about the church in the digital world and care about evangelism and discipleship in the context of this digital age that we live in. So, hey, check it out. And if you haven't yet figured it out, we have these weekly video tutorials. Maybe you haven't seen them yet, but at wordmadedigital.com or the link down in the show notes here, every week we're bringing you vlog style video tutorials. They're on YouTube or you can find them. I would love for you to describe, subscribe to that, but you can find them at wordmadedigital.com as well. Okay, I can't think of a better way to start off the year than with Sunder Krishnan. Sunder Krishnan, if you don't know him, is a pastor, one of the most amazing teachers and communicators I've ever known. And I say that because he has taught me things, I'm talking like five and ten years ago in his preaching that I still remember today. That's how good of a communicator and a teacher that he is. So he's a retired pastor now, but uh, his whole ministry is about ministering and serving and mentoring the next generation of pastors. So you're going to love this conversation. I hope you really are encouraged by Sunder today. Thank you so much to Wycliffe College, who is a part of this podcast. If you go to wycliffecollege.ca slash wordmadedigital, they want to send you some swag. Why don't you do it? Because, hey, everybody loves swag. Everybody loves getting stuff in the mail. And you can check out what's going on at the school. World-class faculty and top scholars and just amazing programs, whether you want to do full-time, part-time. I mean, typically they would offer things both online and in class. Right now it's primarily in all online. But into the future, if you're looking or if you're looking now, trying to make the most of a year where you're primarily stuck at home, why don't you explore this kind of training and discipleship that they offer? Go to Wycliffe College. You can uh, check out the link below. Also, thanks, of course, to Compassion Canada, an amazing organization. Just so grateful to partner with them and to be part of what they're doing around the world. I hope that you are a part of it. But if you're not, there's such simple ways you can get involved in this work that's both about eradicating poverty in the lives of children and their families, but it's also about, at this moment, about COVID-19 and how to, um, you know, re- sort of reverse the domino effect that this has had in communities in a major, major way all over the world. So if you go to compassion.ca slash gifts, there's ways you can give directly to COVID-19 the things that uh, will help people right now today, or maybe you want to give towards education or you care about women and, and girls, whatever it is that you are most passionate about, there's probably a gift there that you can give and you can give it on behalf of yourself or you can give it on behalf of someone else's birthday or something coming up. We'd love for you to check that out. Okay, up on the podcast today, as I've said, is Sunder Christian. He's a retired pastor who served at Rexdale Alliance Church in Toronto for 36 years, multicultural, diverse church in Toronto. And his primary calling now in his retirement is about preaching and mentoring the next generation and mobilizing intercessors towards the Great Commission. So Sunder was born in India. He grew up in New Delhi. He's a graduate from both the Indian Institute of Technology, but he also received his MS in Mechanical Engineering from MIT, 
in the U.S. So brilliant, smart guy, um, one of the best apologists that I uh, have experienced in my own life. And I just think you're going to be really encouraged and gain a lot. You might want to grab a notepad, write something down on your phone. Take notes on this one, everybody. Enjoy Sunder Krishnan. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Well, Sunder Krishnan, welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast. I'm uh, really honored to have you today. Happy to be here. It's always a pleasure and look forward to serving you in any way that I can. Uh, before we go too far, could you introduce yourself to people? Um, what is the context of your life or your work? Well, right now, I'm actually, uh, I'm retired right now. Um, I was an engineer by profession. I did my undergraduate training in New Delhi, India. I did my graduate work in MIT and graduated in 1969 with a degree in mechanical engineering and moved to Toronto in June of 1969. And I worked with Atomic Energy of Canada till October of 1980. At that time, I resigned my job and joined the staff of uh, Rexdale Alliance Church, uh, first as preaching pastor and then a senior pastor where I preached and taught and led the church for 36 years. I resigned, or retired, I should say, in uh, June of 19, uh, sorry, 2016. And then for four years after that, I've been, quote, retired, but continuing to engage in probably my two major passion areas that define my calling in these days. That is preaching and teaching God's word and mentoring the next generation. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm at right now. Yeah, I mean, amazing. I mean, really, the reason I wanted to have you is this idea of mentorship. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are younger ministry leaders, and I just hope we can encourage them today with some insight from you and, and your own story and, and reflections on on the years of ministry that you had. I mean, coming out of coming out of an engineering background, something that we have as a common tie is my father was a mechanical engineer who worked for AECL and, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, my family lived abroad in Romania when I was a kid. And I actually went to an AECL school in Romania while my father worked on this nuclear right. engineering project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's anyways, just a little tie between our, our lives. And then, yeah, that, you that know, is, my, that is yeah. Yeah, I mean, my my work is not engineering, uh, more ministry. But <laughs> um, can you share a little bit? There was you really have an amazing story of even how you came to know the Lord. Um, can you share a little bit about how that happened yeah. for you? It was it was in New Delhi, India, where I was growing up, and the background that I had was uh, uh, the the majority religion in the country that I grew up in, and. Uh, really didn't grow up as a very religious person, although uh, every home in that part of the world is very religious by nature. 
in fact, actually very much more like Old Testament religion where temple and sacrifices and uh, awareness of God and the supernatural side of life was very much a part of everyday life. And so when you read about Old Testament festivals at various times, that was very much a part of my faith growing up too, even though I was not from a Jewish background. Uh, however, at the same time, I, when I got into my first year of engineering, uh, living on campus, I began to just ask a lot of questions. My mind was kind of trained and wired to be logical in its approach. So I just asked my, asked my parents a lot of questions about, about God. Is God just a figment of our imagination? Did we create him to answer questions for which we didn't have any answers? Or is he really there as an objective reality? And my parents basically said, look, we don't ask such questions. We just did what our parents told us to do. Hmm. And that wasn't uh, satisfactory for me. And so in that questioning mode, through a, a friend of mine, uh, who later became my brother-in-law, uh, and his dad and my dad both worked for the government of India, and so we grew up together in the same government housing quarters at the age of 16, uh, I went to a YFC rally, uh, uh, Youth Unlimited, we would call it today, and there heard the claims of Jesus for the first time and began to then grapple with the whole idea that uh, the Christian religion of which I, with which I was familiar was very, very different than what Jesus came to talk about, and that his was an invitation to a personal faith. And so I then went to a YFC summer camp, and in my first year of engineering, I uh, responded and became a follower of Jesus. Hmm. Wow. And and were there were there times in your life where you uh, you know you're a thinking person, an academic uh, person? Were there times along your journey where you had any seasons of doubt, or um, you know, at pre were you ever at a precipice of deciding would I continue? I'm not sure I can believe this anymore. Uh, yes, it was, but not necessarily that I cannot believe. It happened much later on uh, in in the early years after I became a Christ follower. Uh, I began to add a natural passion to study God's word. So I began to grow a lot in my theological understanding. Uh, and then I came to North America, as I mentioned, and there I was introduced to the whole field of apologetics for the first time. I started reading John Montgomery and Norman Geisler and Francis Schaeffer uh, and all of those people. And so suddenly discovered this whole rational basis for, the, for my faith. And so I began to continue to grow in my confidence. So both biblical knowledge and understanding, a theological framework was developing gradually uh, along with my intellectual understanding from the apologetic philosophical side. So my faith continued to increase, and it remained that way for the until the first fourth year of my ministry time. So that would be 1984. I would have been a Christ follower for 21 years at that time, and I would have been in the so-called full-time ministry for four years. I went home to India at that time for seven weeks. My children had never seen my, my niece and nephew, and so we decided to take a six-week leave of absence, and I went to India for two months. And there, immersed in the poverty that was all around me, and also with the, just the teeming masses of people, I began mm -hmm. to wrestle with two questions. Will most of these people ever hear the gospel? And when they hear it, will they have the capacity to understand it? And along with that, uh, looking at the issue of poverty, uh, those two things began to press in upon my heart very heavily. Uh, I think growing up in India, you become, uh, you kind of take the culture around you for granted. But having been in North America for so many years and going back, the, 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 the plight of the poor really hits you in your, in your gut. And so when those two things combine together, 
it was a real existential crunch. Uh, my temptation wasn't to walk away from Jesus into a life of hedonism and uh, that I, I just was not interested in that. The temptation was to a privatized Christianity. It was mm. it was like me saying to Jesus, "Look, I will go back home. I'll resign my job as a pastor. I'll try and get my job back with Atomic Energy of Canada. I will serve you." I will lead my family in in a life of holiness and righteousness. But can you please take care of the world? You look after the lost and you look after the poor and don't bother me with it because you aren't doing a very good job yourself either, you know. And that was the existential crisis of faith. And it lasted. It just kept deepening for several weeks while I was there until on my very last Sunday there, God just absolutely miraculously intervened. Uh, and that's another story that if you want to, and if you think the readers would be interested, I can amplify. But that's when he called me back. And since that time, I would say that while there are many, many questions that I've wrestled with God and continue to wrestle with him, I've, I've discovered that wrestling is an important dimension of intimacy. Uh, Donald Postman in his book, Space for God, said, You can do many things long distance with someone, but you cannot wrestle long distance. Wrestling Hmm. is up close, personal, and intimate. And so I've come to realize that wrestling with Jesus is a very important part of spiritual formation and actually development and intimacy. Most people fight, shy away from wrestling when in fact we need to wrestle. So much of the Psalms are about people individually and corporately wrestling with God. So I have wrestled often and and even to this day wrestle but uh, but this but a genuine temptation to walk away happened in the in that crisis in india but as gk chesterton once said when faith in god becomes difficult and you want to walk away tell me in heaven's in heaven's name what are you going to walk away to every other alternative was even more of a problem hmm. well i think I mean, I think people resonate with that for sure. If you come from a faith background, to decide to leave it is leaving not just an idea, but leaving an entire life and a community of people and a way you spend your money, a way you think about world views and make decisions. And the idea of unraveling that is is overwhelming, which perhaps makes some people not want to ask questions ever because it's too scary to ask a question because what if uh, you get the answer you don't want? Yeah, um, you know, and somebody once somebody once said that if you make people think they are thinking, they will love you. If you really make them think, they will hate you. <laughs> and so I think that's how, why we have our question. So how how did you do that? I mean, you are um, a master communicator, a preacher, truly. I mean, I I for me, the mark of an excellent preacher is not you move head and heart. Uh, but mm. also that I remember things you said years ago and I still think mm. about them. And that to me mm. is the excellence of communication uh, mm. that I remember it still so many years after hearing it. So, uh, you know, how do you get people to think? <laughs> what is your okay. approach to that with people? Yeah, I think uh, I would speak that there's both the human and the divine element. I mean, our whole walk with Jesus is the interplay of human and divine, you know, and God has put both of those things in his word. And so often when we wrestle with the interface between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, uh, we, we want the answers to go one way or another. But that's a tension that scripture never resolves. It wants us to live in the middle of that tension. So let me speak uh, briefly to the human side of it and then the divine side, and then I'll be happy to elaborate whichever you think needs elaboration. From the human side, I think number one, uh, 
you have to face the questions. I, I, from my from my mentor, who was uh, my pastor at Rexdale before I stepped into his shoes, he always said, anticipate the questions that people might be asking and name them mm-hmm. and face them. So mm-hmm. to get people to think, I would I would anticipate the questions. Uh, so that was very very helpful, and I would actually make the question even in parenting when our children were young if if they were getting a little bit older and they weren't asking some questions i would deliberately raise those tough questions in my own conversations with them to force them to think so raising questions to show them that you're not afraid of it is number one i think number two uh, focusing on process rather than answers is also very crucial and that is you can uh, george mcdonald who was c.s lewis's mentor said the goal of the pastor or the preacher or the teacher is not to teach people what to think, but to lead them to the master so he can teach them what to think. And so to be able to say, look, truth in the Christian faith is ultimately not conceptual, but truth is a person. Jesus said, mm-hmm. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So the answers to questions is ultimately relational, not intellectual. Calvin Miller, another one of my favorite preachers, once said, People do not come to church to get specific answers to specific questions, he said. They come because they have lost touch with the world that they know is out there and are desperately hoping for reconnection. And he said the issue is not specific answers to specific questions, but the greater issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all questions, those that have answers and those that don't have answers. So that's the second thing, to be able to root the whole search. So face the questions surface the questions, don't be afraid of them, and help them to see that there are no quick, just intellectual, conceptual answers, although there are many. But at heart, the resolution to those tough questions is engaging with Jesus in a relational encounter with him. I think Corey Ten Boom in her book, in her movie, The Hiding Place, said it so beautifully right at the end when someone asked her, so do you you uh, you now have all the answers? She says, no but I'm learning to live the questions, learning mm-hmm. to live the questions. And to me, I learned to live the questions in a, in a daily pursuit of intimacy with Jesus. And so I walk away from many of these things, not necessarily having complete answers, but something has happened in me. It's interesting that the very first prayer in the Bible that is recorded for us was Abraham's wrestling with uh, with God in Genesis chapter 18, when God has announced to Abraham that I'm going to destroy Sodom. Now, Abraham can't understand that because he said, there must be some righteous people in Sodom. God, how can you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you, O God, to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And then there's that beautiful haggling that sounds like haggling in an Eastern marketplace, you know, where Abraham says, for 50 people, will you destroy the whole place? God says, no, nah, not for 50, okay. 45? No, 40, 10, 30, 20, 10. <laughs> He's kind of haggling that, like we haggle down the prices in a, in a Middle Eastern market. He's haggled it down to 10, and then it stops. And people have given all kinds of fanciful answers to why it stopped, you know. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Abraham had his lot and his lot's wife and two children, so there's six people. Surely by now they must have led four more people to the worship of Yahweh. So I'm 10, as if I've negotiated God down. Whereas John White in his book, Daring to Draw Near, taught me, he said, no, 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 no. He said, somewhere along the line, in that honest wrestling with God, Abraham suddenly broke through to an understanding. It's okay if I don't understand. God is still God, and the God of all the earth will still do right. 
So it's just amazing to me that the very first prayer in the Bible is a mm-hmm. wrestling prayer, intellectual questions settled relationally, and you go away. And it's very interesting. It ends by saying, not when Abraham had finished. It says when God finished speaking to Abraham, they departed. So it was God mm-hmm. who was in control of the whole process. So even the questions, even the questions that surfaced in Abraham's mind were God's doing. So never, never be afraid of questions. It is Jesus mm-hmm. inviting you to wrestle with him and to break through to a sense that my God is still on the throne, whether I understand him or not. Wow. I'm thinking of some people right now who are in these yeah. wrestles or in a dark yeah. time yeah. or season in their life. Things have, maybe they're disillusioned. Um, mm-hmm. Things haven't gone with their life or their faith or whatever the way they thought. And and I think this is just a great reminder that that you can't wrestle if you aren't near each other, that the wrestling exactly. is good. And so, and so yeah. those are the first two things about uh, surface the questions, uh, learn to wrestle with God. And then I think I also, they need to know that you're a reader, not not to show off, not for name dropping and stuff like that, But for example, as you and I even talked in the last seven or eight minutes, I've quoted about three or four people, not because I planned them or planned to impress you with the people I read. They just happen to come into your mind and people become aware of the fact that you are reading Mm -hmm. and you need need thinkers in your life. So So I regularly introduce people to thinkers in my preaching as well. So that would be the third dimension. So those are the human dimensions, I would say. Surface the questions. Understand that truth is a relational encounter and uh, feed feed your mind with people who are good thinkers. Uh, then I would say work very hard. That'll be the fourth human factor. Work very hard at being in, what's the word I'm looking for? Intelligible. In other words, choose your words carefully. Work mm-hmm. hard on the communication side of things. There are some basic communication skills that are needed. Work hard to saturate yourself with the material. That's, that's, I would say, the, the relational, mechanical, the, how, the how-to side of things. And then I think there's the divine side of it. And the divine side of it is what happens in the secret place is when you are pleading with God. When you're mm. pleading with God for unction. For, you know, when Paul, who was such an incredibly brilliant man, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to see you, he said, I didn't come to sway you with subtle arguments and clever speech. But I came, at what I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Why? So that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And so mm-hmm. there was that humble wrestling and trembling before God, which no one sees, which no one sees. But as Calvin no. Miller said, the thing that will be most obvious to people about the preacher is his touch or lack of touch with God. You never have to mm-hmm. broadcast it, but they will know. So yeah. I think that's the divine side of it, the pleading with God in the silent place for anointing, for unction. You know? Which I you think know, is I'm, the real reason you, you remember things I said a long time ago, not because I was clever, but because the Holy <laughs> Spirit just engraved them upon your heart. That's true. It's true. You know, I think um, uh, I th- I, there's so many things. I would like to touch on this idea I'll get back to it in a minute, but some of the things I've had most insight from you is, is an Eastern perspective compared to a Western perspective on, uh, some, some things in the text that we miss, I think particularly of, a, a teaching you did about honoring your parents and you brought it from an Eastern perspective mm-hmm. that 
was very challenging and beautiful for me. But so I want to get back to that in a minute to see if there's some things you'd have some insights for us of where we could learn more about that side if we come from a more European perspective. Um, but before that, the, as you're saying, you're mentioning, you know, you're you're using the names of people that you've read constantly. And I think one of the things I think of with younger preachers and communicators today, which is has always been true, but now it's more true than ever, is that we can be compared to the best preachers and teachers of the world, you know, on our, you know, on any given day of the week, we all have access through this digital stuff to some of the the most excellent teaching and preaching in the world. And so what would you say to the the local pastor who's just trying to do their best and is constantly being compared to these excellent teachers? You know what? That's such an important question, and I would love to answer that because I wrestled with it myself. Uh, For example, and I'll be very honest, uh, most people know the name John Piper. John Piper is uh, a major, major influential pastor still alive today. What most of you will not know is that John Piper and I were the same age, and we started ministry at exactly the same time. I started in 1980 at Rexdale, and he started at Bethlehem Church in 1980. But as I say to people, there the similarity ends. <laughs> I mean, the man has written <laughs> dozens and dozens of influential books. At one point, when the younger generation in my church wanted me to start tweeting and blogging, uh, in, in deference to them, I said, okay, let me try tweeting. Uh, at my best, I had 35 followers. John Piper has 340,000 followers, you know. Wow. So yeah. I understand. I understand the temptation to compare yourself. But let me tell you two things that you, the local pastor, have an advantage over that the best preacher on online does not have. Number one is you know your congregation, they don't. You have a relationship with your congregation, Tim Keller and John Piper don't, even though I learned so much from them. And again, because truth is relational, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because truth is relational, when you preach to your people, if you love them, and you love that particular local body, and you are laboring on their behalf, they're going to get it. They will get mm-hmm. it. And so truth will be communicated. So take heart, take heart. You love your people, know your people. And then secondly, uh, if you are praying, ultimately it's if you, that, that secret communion with God where you're wrestling with him before anyone ever sees you in the pulpit. You are praying for your congregation in your particular church in that local time. Eugene Peterson said, uh, the body of Christ has an address. You localize, you deal with local actual people. One of the one of the amazing truths of the incarnation is that the incarnation always rescues us from abstracting our faith from actual people living actual marriages, actual situations. And so as you begin to walk in the midst of that conversation as well. Peterson said, you are always part of two conversations. I'm talking to God and I'm talking to my people. And each Mm -hmm. conversation becomes the fuel for the other. My conversations with God give me fuel for my preaching. My conversations with my people give me fuel for my prayers. It's that that makes you and your congregation unique. And the interchange that happens, the best sermon online cannot produce. Mm, right. And what do you... Although you, feed, although you feed yourself. I mean, I listen to these people. I've learned a lot from them. But you, you and your church are unique. 
Right. And yeah. I mean, it's so true. I love the, the, the idea that the church has an address, the kingdom of God has an yeah. address. It's a localized, even in right. this world where we have access to everything, um, yeah. maybe, maybe it's not always helpful. We need to lean into what the spirit is saying to our own community. Uh, you know, and in that, you know, there's, there's this sort of, um, you know, you mentioned John Piper, the celebrity, the celebrity pastor preacher. Um, you know, I think it's a huge temptation or, or feeling it can be a discouragement to people who look, they aren't the celebrity pastor or preacher, um, <laughs> uh, themselves, but you know, do, is that something, you know, I mean, maybe it's a redundant question, but something to aspire to, or what do you, what do you do when you raise in notoriety, even in a small way, how do you stay the course? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question because sometimes, uh, uh, I certainly never imagined I would even have the exposure and the platform that I do have, you know, uh, several things helped me in the process. I have discovered that the, I would say the cardinal Christian virtue is humility. In this context, I mean, one could argue that C.S. Lewis argues that courage is the fundamental virtue because courage is the form every virtue takes at the point of testing. But in the context that you and I are talking about, I think humility before God and humility before people is absolutely crucial so that you're not grasping for anything at all. Uh, This is where I think thinking with the mind of Jesus becomes so important. Um, and the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual song. He says, do this out of reverence for Jesus. So the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives is to build a sense of awe at the mindset of Jesus that took him to the cross. And what does he say? He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And where is the rest coming from? Take my yoke upon you. And the yoke in that context was a the, uh, the rabbi's yoke was that submitting to the teaching of a rabbi. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And then what does he say? Learn of me for I am humble and meek. Hmm. Jesus teaches us who Jesus is. He doesn't say come and learn of me because I'm so skilled at all of these things. He said come and learn of me for I am humble and I am meek and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that daily continual walking at the feet of Jesus to cultivate the mind of Jesus that is the humble and the meek mind of Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit slowly makes attractive because this is not what is popular. What is popular is not humility, but recognition. What is popular is not meekness, but force and power. Mm. Whereas the mindset that took Jesus to the cross was Hold your honor loosely and be angry at the things that anger the heart of God. And when your own honor is at stake, hold it lightly. And that's a lifetime of learning that. So when that becomes your primary pursuit in life, it helps deal with whatever praise does come. That's number one. The second thing that I helped dealing with praise was C.S. Lewis taught me that. He said, don't pretend. Don't pretend. So when people say it, and, and, and the way I had to translate that to myself was, if, if people came to me on a Sunday morning and said, oh, Pastor Sunta, that was a great sermon. Humility, humility doesn't mean saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's not, you know, it, it really wasn't there. It wasn't that, that good a sermon. <laughs> he said, that's not humility. That's actually pride because what you're actually hoping for is that the person will come back and say, no, no, Sunday it was really, really good, you know. So he said, that's not humility at all. He said, humility is simply 
thinking accurately about something. Where Paul says in Romans 12, don't think highly about yourself, but he also doesn't say think lowly. He just says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned to say to people who came to me and said, hey, that was a great sermon, I would say, I am so glad to hear that because that's what I prayed for. And many people in this church pray for me every Sunday. I am so thankful that God answered your prayer and my prayer and that you found that sermon helpful. Wow. And so I learned to actually, so that was honest, and yet it gave glory to God without appearing to be, you know, like a Uriah heapishness kind of thing, which is not really, <laughs> which is obsequiousness, but not humility. So, so the continual practice of humility, the pursuit of humility and meekness, holding praise loosely, but on, but honestly, you know, to people were, were two things that helped. And I think also thirdly, uh, community becomes very important, especially for those of us who are married. Uh, and that's a whole subject in itself, the God's design in marriage. What a lot of people don't, I think, get it, and I focus a lot on preparing younger couples for this, is marriage is not God's primary means to make us happy. Mm-hmm. God's Marriage is God's primary means to reveal our brokenness and our sinfulness because it is in that safe environment of a safe relationship that we react the way that shows what we are really like on the inside. But it's not to throw up our hands. It's to say, okay, this is what I signed up for. I'm on the main highway. Uh, Walter Wangren, another one of my favorite writers, he calls our spouses mirrors of dangerous grace. He says, mm. he says they are mirrors that are dangerous because they show us not what mirrors show us what we are like on the outside. Our spouses show us what we are like on the inside. They are dangerous. But they are gracious because if we are willing to accept it and not walk away, but take it to Jesus, we begin to grow. And so I would say that is another huge, huge dimension of our lives. If not, And for those of you who are single and not married, close relationships become important because those are the primary ways in which our relationships show us the bankruptcy of our soul and drive us to Jesus. You know? So I would say those are the three things that have kind of kept me. The pursuit of humility, an honest acknowledgement of praise and giving glory to God without pretending, and thirdly, uh, looking at what is going on inside in the relational dimension of our lives and taking what we find there honestly to God. You know? um, another thing that you talk about related to this is you have um, a, a practice or a discipline in your life around your Bible reading and your Sabbath, mm-hmm. um, some mm-hmm. rhythms there that you have built into your life. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How do you, can you teach us a little bit about what you do when you read the Bible? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. And again, uh, you need to remember that what I'm going to be sharing today, I'm 75 years old. I have been doing this for 40 years now. So some of you who are not even 40 yet, don't give up. You don't have to be like me tomorrow because I'm not like others whose eyes I have. It's a journey that Mm -hmm. we're on. And we're all on the same journey, and that's all I want. So, and there's a lot of people that are writing these days. Peter Scazzaro has written some amazing stuff on the rule of life. So this is nothing new. But one of the things I have found personally, because when you're a pastor, you're always asking, how, how will this help my people? How will this help my people? And the fact of the matter is, most of our people don't read much. And they barely have time to read. They barely have time to break things down. So part of the job of a pastor is to internalize truth and put it on the lower shelf, not because we are insulting our people's intellectual abilities. They are all brilliant doctors, lawyers, engineers, housewives, whatnot, you know. But it's the fact that 
some of the stuff is not accessible to them because it's just the pressures of life. And so we have to find a way of helping them. So, uh, for example, uh, I would say getting the right metaphors and images are important because otherwise, even the very name spiritual disciplines can be a scary thing because it's like, oh my goodness, I got one more thing I want to discipline myself to do, you know? And so they can create the idea of something like medicine. I kind of have to do it. And yet it's the furthest thing. So here are a couple of metaphors that have helped me a lot when it comes to these disciplines I'm going to be talking about. Uh, One which some of you have probably read or heard about the book, The Trellis and the Vine. If you're a gardener of any kind, and I'm not a very good gardener, if you ever planted a rose bush or something like that, a climbing rose especially, it needs a trellis. It needs a little framework. And so the rose will climb. Now, the trellis is made of wood. It has no life in it. All the life is in the vine. But all the trellis does is help the life that is in the vine to grow mm. and express itself. But, but the, if you only grew trellises, they won't grow at all, no matter how much feeding you give to them. But if you planted the rose with no trellis, it would die too. And think of your spiritual disciplines as trellises, practices that in themselves have no life, but they allow the life of Jesus in you to express themselves. That mm-hmm. is one very uh, picture that, that has helped me out to understand discipline there. So, uh, the, the, so um, all of that to say, out of all the many, many spiritual disciplines that have been written about, three or four I find are, absolutely essential. Uh, scripture, is, scripture is central. Probably there is no other practice that is so transformative as just simply reading the Bible. All of it, the parts you understand and the parts you don't understand. Because it's not primarily a, a book of information. If it was only a book of information, then how many times can you read the story of David and Goliath? How many times can you read the story of Daniel and the lions? And how many times can you read Jesus' stories in the gospel when you know them all? You know? But if we understand it not primarily as words for information, but a voice that is inviting me into a relationship to enter the story. And this is where even that Eastern perspective, I think, that you talked about becomes very helpful. Then I begin to read the scriptures for what God wants to say to me through them. And it's not necessarily even, you should now do this, you should now do that. There are many, many ways in which God's word can speak to us. Uh, Sometimes it reveals something about the ways of God. So when you're reading a story in the Bible, you're reading a story about how God works with his people, which which reveals to you something about God. Uh, Another time it can be something in your life that is not right, a sin, a shortcoming. Another time it can be Uh, an insight into God's word. Another time it can be a lamentation, like one of some of the Psalms that talk about enemies and lamenting and how long, O Lord, and why. Other times it can exhort an action, you know. And so when when I'm stopped in my Bible reading by something like that, I just take, respond to God in keeping with what he says to me. Like in our everyday, for example, you came to me right now and you said to me, well, you know, Sundar, People have talked to you. Talked to us about some spiritual disciplines, etc. Can you talk to us about uh, talk to us about that? And I would say to you, well, hasn't it been a beautifully warm day today? You would say, just a minute. Either Sundar is incredibly rude, or he's <laughs> deaf and he didn't listen to me, or he has an agenda of his own. No, in normal conversation, we take our cues from what you said to me. Now, in response to that. I can say many, many different things and they would all be valid. I could say to you, oh, I'd be happy to talk about them. Or 
which of the many disciplines would you like me to talk about? Or why are we raising that question at this time? They would all be legitimate responses. So there's nothing mechanical about human interactions. We take our cues from what people say to us, and then we can speak in any one of many different ways. I found God's word, if you read the word of God that way, what is God saying to me today? And then taking my cues from him, what would I want to say to him now? If he was sitting across the room from me on the other side of my Bible, which by the way, he is, he's sitting right there. What would you say to him? You might ask him a question if you're confused. You might get angry if you read a story that really bothers you a lot and seems injustice. You might uh, cry out for mercy and strength if a sin convicted you. You might break out in a song if it was something great about God. And so your responses can be so varied and so different. And by the way, the next year when you're reading the same passage, guess what? The passage is the same, but you're different. Mm, you may yeah. be different stage in your life. You may be in a different country. I have read the same passage of scripture halfway around the world with a very different response. And so I've been doing this for about 36 years right now, reading through the Bible every year. And you say, well, how do I know God is speaking to me? Huh. Drop out those mystical words. I just simply ask myself, did something strike you? Uh, what strikes you? If you're reading and something strikes you, mark it down. And so what I do is I, I do that last thing at night before I go to bed. I read my Bible reading portion for the day and I use a, I use a reading plan so that I go through the Bible every year. But I'm not reading to study. I'm just, yeah, I resist the temptation mm -hmm. to pull down my concordances and my, that's for the, that's for my study when I'm studying the sermons. This is just reading, absorbing huge stuff inside, just washing my mind with the word. I am not making any attempt to even get something out of it. I just let it strike me and I just highlight some things. And then the next day when I have my prayer time with God, I go back over those portions where he struck me and I say, okay, what is an organic, legitimate, heartfelt response to what I've just heard? Mm -hmm. It can be praise, it can be petition, it can be intercession, it can be journaling, it can be lamentation. Uh, and so my Bible reading and my prayer, which we have separated most often, I read my Bible and I pray and the twain shall never meet. That's not the way it was intended to be. It's scripture, God speaking to me as me speaking back to God, and then he speaks to me and I speak back to him. And you, you're learning a language that's so going to take a while. I mean, if, if, if some of my listeners had to start le learning a new language, what are they going to do? They have to immerse themselves in that language. And missionaries go to other countries. They immerse themselves in the language. They immerse themselves in a language that they cannot understand so that they can understand. Yeah. In the same way, we are just immersing ourselves in the, think of scripture as language. That's why it's interesting that the, one of the favorite metaphors that the Bible uses for how we interact with the Bible is eating. Jeremiah said, when your words came to me, I ate them. And Ezekiel, when Ezekiel went to speak in, uh, to the people in exile, Ezekiel said, the angel came to me and gave me a scroll and said, eat it. Mm. And he said, it was sweet in my mouth and bitter in my stomach. And then he said, go preach. And the same thing happened to John in Revelation. The angel gave him a scroll and he said, eat the scroll. It will be sweet in your mouth and then bitter in your stomach and then go and preach. Now, what does that sweet in my mouth and bitter in my stomach mean? The reason why it was sweet in Ezekiel's mouth and sweet in John's mouth is that it was God's word was tasty. God's word was beautiful. But the message that these two men had to preach was a very heavy, burdensome message. And so they began to feel the weight of the message. In the same way for you and I who are pastors, wouldn't it be amazing if we thought of our preaching as, I am going to 
give to them what I've eaten. I've eaten this meal in God's presence, and that meal was internalized so that it was not only sweet in my mouth, but was appropriately effective in my own life. Sweet if the message was sweet, encouraging if the message was encouraging, challenging the message was challenging, and then I go and speak, having eaten at God's table. I mean, what a difference it would make. The, the metaphors are so powerful when we think of them. So that's so that's my fundamental discipline of Bible reading uh, and prayer. The two fused together. Other other practices like Sabbath, which is the rhythm of one day in seven, and, and basically there are so many simple ways to look at Sabbath. But I have one or two rules that help me break the tyranny of time. Don't do what you do the other six days and live in responsive mode. Hmm. Break the tyranny of time. Don't do what you do the other six days and live in responsive mode. Do not produce. It is not a day for producing. It is a day for resting and living in responsive mode. Now, all kinds of things happen during that time that will affect your product, but that's not what you're doing it for. Anyway, I could amplify any one of these, but that gives you a bit of a flavor. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And you've spoken on a number of these topics if people want to go and find... Uh, right. your content on it. Um, but let's go back for a few minutes to the, you've ref, you know, I'm thinking about as you read the book, the language you're learning, there's some pieces of language that as a modern, um, a modern reader we miss, or as a person of a different, you know, ec- ethnic background have missed, you know, we're not, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm a European background, white woman. <laughs> Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about some, or maybe even just uh, you have pointers, if we want to understand thinking like Jesus a little bit more Eastern um, or some insights that you have, or maybe just an illustration from a story, something that, that you see Jesus say that we miss. You know, okay, this is, this is good. Okay, again, this is time for honesty, right? Uh, because I come from an Eastern background, uh, something that is not obvious is the fact of how Western my upbringing really was. Uh, because I grew up in the city of New Delhi, not in the village. 80% of India is rural. I grew up in the city of New Delhi. My mother, I, she was only 19 when I was born. And so firstborn sons in India are huge. They're almost like God, you know. And <laughs> my mother had dream of a first. My son must learn English. Now, she didn't know that my whole life calling was going to require a mastery of the English language. But God put it upon her heart that my son must learn English. And so by the time I was five years old, I was speaking uh, Tamil, which was my mother tongue, Hindi, which is the main language in India because I grew up in New Delhi in North India. But I was actually far more fluent in English by the time I was five than I was even in my other two languages. And I, and I love to read. And my parents, even though we were not very wealthy, they kept me kept me with a good supply of books. So I became very fluent in the English language. And because, you know, language is such a powerful molder of culture. And so actually, the English language had an incredibly powerful effect on me. Then growing up, I also listened to English music, you know, pop songs, you know, Elvis Presley and Pat Boone and all of those kinds of things. And we saw English movies. It's not that I didn't see Hindi movies. I loved them too. I also liked my Hindi music. But English, again, being my primary language. So now when you add music and art to language, there is a powerful culture. And then my subculture there, my close friends, many of whom spoke English, I went to an English-speaking school and an English-medium school. So 
surrounded, and the books that I read were about British schoolboys, you know, set in mm. England. And so when I came to North America, I didn't have any kind of a culture shock at all. <laughs> in fact, I remember very early on in my ministry, I was speaking at a conference at a, at a college in the eastern part of the country. And another gentleman who was speaking there was a much older gentleman named Dennis Clark. And he had been an international worker in India for 40 years. So here was an Indian and a Canadian speaking to them. And at the end of it, the people's observation was that Canadian gentleman was far more Eastern and I was far more Western. Huh. <laughs> Fascinating. All of that to say that in some senses, I'm not all that different from Western. <clears throat> that which is Eastern in me, I think, is probably more the fact that we are able to think integratively, not just mm. propositionally, but to think in terms of integration. But I've actually had to learn that. Uh, it required another English person, Eugene Peterson, who was a poet, to awaken me to certain dimensions that I didn't even know I had. For example, in his book on Revelation, he talks about how uh, the pastor is called to be a theologian, a poet, and a pastor. You know, mm. I understood theologian. I understood pastor. But I couldn't understand poet. And he began talking about the fact, he said, look, uh, you so much of the Bible is given to us in poetry form. Large sections of the prophets are Hebrew poetry. All the Psalms are poetry. Uh, mm. And he said, and then so much of it is in the story form as well. Very, If you look at the didactic portions of Scripture, they are so, so small. You know, basically from Romans on, there are a few didactic Psalms and from Romans right up unto Revelation, and that's it. But otherwise, most of the Old Testament, history, apocalypse, prophecy, and story. And story affects our imagination. Story invites us to participate. Story doesn't just give us principles. And so it was listening to Eugene Peterson say, you are a pastor, you need to sanctify your imagination. Hmm. And so I wow. slowly began to trust my ability to imagine uh, music, uh, the, the poet, and of course, music and hymns and uh, modern day songs combine poetry with music, two more art forms that are integrative in nature. And so then I began to look everywhere at the images in scripture. And this is where I think uh, the Eastern mindset really starts thriving. They look, they think metaphorically, they think in images, they don't think linearly. They mm. are far more comfortable with mystery. Doesn't matter if you don't, can't resolve something. You learn to live with mystery and you become a worshiper. I, I saw, for example, a trajectory in my life. If, I, if you were looking at a diagram and I'm pointing it from your side, uh, when you first become a follower of Jesus, you start learning a lot and you start increasing in your knowledge and your understanding. And then all of a sudden, 15, 20 years into the journey, you re-encounter all those questions at a much more intense level and the old answers are no longer satisfactory. At that, at that point, you have one of two options. You can either walk away from your faith saying, I don't have any answers, or you learn to live with mystery and become a worshiper. And it mm. takes you to a whole new level. And this is where images have been so helpful for me. And so in my Bible reading that I explained to you a little bit earlier, not only do, do the propositional statements strike me, but I'm also looking for images in Scripture. And those images unleash, for example, a wave of praise or thanksgiving. Let me give you one illustration. Uh, one day I happened to be in my regular Bible reading program. I was leading, reading in 2 Samuel 23, where David, near the end of his life, says, When one rules over men in righteousness and in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. He is like brightness after the rain. 
And I thought, ooh, I'm called to be a ruler over men as a pastor, okay? When one rules over men in righteousness, he said, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Now, in my Western engineering mindset, I would have just skipped over the whole thing. But in this imaginative mindset, I said, okay, what is the light of morning like at sunrise on a cloudless morning? Well, right away, it does three things for me. I'm an early riser anyway, but if the sun is out, like these days we are enjoying an amazing break of sunshine. If the sun is out, I cannot sleep one more minute in bed. I'm out of bed. So the number one the sun sun does is to awaken me from my sleep. Secondly, all through the morning while I'm shaving, having breakfast, getting ready, I'm eagerly anticipating going out into my favorite ravine because I love walking and praying outside. So it fills me with anticipation. And then thirdly, as soon as I step out into the sunlight, having grown up in India for 22 years, I can just feel the vitamin D coming up in my bodies all over again. So I said, okay, that's what the light of morning on a cloudless morning does for me. It awakens me from my slumber, it fills me with anticipation, and it fills me with energy. And he said, if you rule over men in righteousness and the fear of God, you will have that effect on your people. Can you see how that image uh, unlocked, yeah. unleashed the whole time of prayer? So that's, that's an, and I've got, so I, I don't know how good an answer it is to your question, but it's the best I can do. No, yeah. it's great. It's great. I mean, you're, you're referencing so many books or authors. Would you, do you have a book that you would say uh, has, other than, you know, the scriptures, the Bible, is there a book or a few books or an author that uh, has really influenced you? Or you think what, to people listening, like, if you were going to recommend a book to them, which book would it be? I would say that if, if it's only one book, then of course, I would have to ask them, where are you at right now, etc. But so let me answer your first question. But even that, uh, I, something I learned very recently to show you that we never, never stop learning. Uh, six months ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have just given you the list of books. Today, I'm adding this little at the end. My wife was actually listening to a sermon by John Piper. and Somebody had asked him about a book. And he said, he said, books don't change us, paragraphs do. Huh. I thought, oh, my goodness, that is incredible. That is so true because we forget books, but we don't, but we remember paragraphs. And for me, I would go even further, not just paragraphs, but one-liners, one-liners stick in my mind. So I made it a habit of collecting one-liners. So with that caveat, let me tell you the people that have helped me a lot, and each one uniquely. I would pick three or four right out of them. Eugene Peterson, probably more than anyone else, as a pastor, gave me a stance. If I, if I say he taught me a stance for doing ministry. In other words, ministry is not what you do for God. Ministry is what God does in you. That one perspective, living in responsible ministry is not what you do for God. Ministry is what God, what God does in you and through you. All of his writings basically amplify that, that, that relaxed, un, non-frenzied kind of approach to ministry. That I learned from Peterson. So any of his books. If you've never read anything in these days, I would start. I would start with uh, Reverse Thunder. Reverse Thunder is his book on Revelation, on the book of Revelation. So timely. So I would start mm -hmm. with that because it is a revelation of Jesus. John Piper's one-liner, he taught me that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. Piper taught me that desire, not discipline, is foundational to the Christian life because we always do what we desire. We don't always do what we should do. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental problem is life is not discipline, but desire. I mean, my best illustration is if you try to wake up a teenager to get it to go to church in time or someplace, and you can't wake them up. But if their favorite rock star is coming into town, they can stay up all night to buy tickets. <laughs> Where did they suddenly get the discipline? 
No, they always had the discipline. They just didn't have the desire. So Piper taught me that desire was foundational and that, and God satisfies the deepest longings of us. So as a preacher, I don't, I, want, I don't want to do much exhortation. I'm doing more exaltation. And so younger preachers, I would say you get into the habit, less exhortation, or at least set your exhortations in the context of exaltation. There's always desire at the end. That's what Piper taught me. I would say then, so those were the two, I would say the main writers. C.S. Lewis taught me to make theology accessible to a layperson. He wrote as a layman, and he wrote brilliantly and incisively. So the writings of C.S. Lewis helped me to make theology accessible to the layman or the layperson. So he was very helpful that way. So Peterson for a stance in scripture, John Piper for glory and appetite and desire, C.S. Lewis, I think, for um, making theology accessible to the layperson. Those were the three major writers. And then there's been a whole host of individual mm. people. Like Ben Patterson has an amazing book on waiting. Just wait. It's just called waiting. He says, second only to suffering, nothing builds character like waiting. And mm. we are an impatient culture. In North America, we are an impatient culture. So Patterson's book on waiting was very helpful. Uh, I think R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God, probably those are all single classics that have really helped me. And then in recent times, Peter Scazzaro's writings on emotionally healthy spirituality, helping me to go. And a one-liner from him that helped was, uh, it is impossible to be spiritually mature without being emotionally mature. Mm. Yes. So anyway. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I've read a few of them. I have some work to do on the others. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's wonderful. You have a nice time. Yeah. I mean... You know, as we're kind of coming to the close, the reality is there's so much in you that I'm trying to tap for gold, mine for gold. I mean, we could talk for three hours easily. Um, maybe I'll have to have you back another time and we'll have to, to come Anytime. with a new set Absolutely. of questions. But I mean, I think the maybe it's a classic question, but it's the, you know, if you were to what would you say to your young self, your young ministry self or what you think of? opposite if that's if it's an easier thing to answer when you think of people going into ministry today the challenges of the world today um what might you say to a to either your young self or to the young minister today to encourage them you know it it, it would be a, a almost redundant but jesus central invitation is come unto me all you labor take my yoke upon you learn from me for i am humble and meek and you will find rest for your soul so whatever you do in your life and you know it's not primarily ministry that's going to shape you paul in ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 after saying keep on be filled with the spirit he doesn't go on to talk about preaching or pastoring he says husbands love your wives Hmm. wives submit to your husbands Parents do not exasperate your children. Children submit to your parents. Slaves obey your masters. Masters love your servants. So, and if I were to upgrade it today, after talking about being filled with the Spirit, he talks about three arenas, marriage, parenting, and work. He doesn't even mention church. And then he goes right after that into Ephesians 6, which is the warfare passage, which is these areas in your marriage, in your parenting, and if you're single people in your web of closed relationships and in the work environment, whether that work is working in a church setting or working in a downtown office or working as a housewife at home, doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Those are the primary settings of spiritual formation. So I would say seek the mind of Jesus in those primary dominant areas and let your pastoring flow out of your marriages, your work, 
uh, how you treat people and the relational dimension. Last question is simply, was it worth it? All that you've gone through in ministry, all the sacrifice, the struggle, has it been worth it? Would you do it again? Yeah. And I would have, I would have to say yes. And then qualified by saying, uh, I have not known God in his providence has not put me through a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. I've I've worked hard. I've worked hard every day, uh, without fail. There were significant times of tensions and testings and challenges, but I'd be lying if I said I've suffered much. Hmm. Uh, I was in a church where my elders loved me. They were my friends. There was ample encouragement. Yeah, there were, there were always challenges, but there was ample encouragement. And so I always say to people, if you didn't succeed where I did, you wouldn't succeed anywhere. <laughs> it, it was so such an ideal thing. But having said all of that, I remember one time my, my son and I were walking together when he was about nine or 10 years old, and he's a pastor today, and he was on a paper route. He said, Dad, how much money would you make in atomic energy if you were still there? So I mentioned a fairly large figure at that time, but it was realistic. He said, oh, my goodness, look at all that we could have done with that. And I remember saying to him, honey, what have we not been able to enjoy in our life Mm. over the last little while? And then we had a wonderful conversation with that. So from that perspective, I would say I never once regretted leaving my prestigious, well-paying job to do something that didn't pay as much, wasn't guaranteed any success, didn't know whether I would last more than a month. And I would say, wow, thank you, Jesus. Wow. Sunder, it's uh, it's so good to learn from you. Um, is there anywhere we can send people to find your work or your teaching? Or uh, is yeah. there somewhere on the internet that we could go <laughs> if people want yeah, more think, from you? Uh, Right. Uh, Many of my videos are no longer on the Rexdale website. Quite a few of them are. There are about nine or 10 key teaching series that are still there. And there's quite a few audio sermons that are there as well. And I have several video sermons of my own, which I was able to download before they took them off the website. But they're high capacity ones. I can talk to you later on how to do it. But the Rexdale Alliance Church website, maybe the best thing for me to do would be to just to give you, uh, send you some links through my email. Sure, and then sure. You can forward and we'll, that. But yeah, we'll link those to, to people so they can find it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I don't know how you would do that, but I'd be happy to send you that information. So <laughs> if you can send me an email to remind me, then I never forget. Will do. Will I, For sure I will. Sunder, thank you so much for your time today. It's my honor and my privilege to do that. Sunder Krishnan. Wow, what an honor to have him on the podcast, just to learn from him, to sit under his teaching and to listen and consider the wisdom of uh, ministry life well lived. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find more from him, we're going to link some things in the show notes, but hey, just go Google his name. You're going to find his teaching all over the place. Next up on the podcast next week, we have Alejandro Reyes. He is a marketing guru is what I want to call him. He is an expert at how to get people to buy the thing that you are selling and to do that in a massive way. He works with some big names like Carrie Newhoff and Christine Kane and John Acuff and some other Christian leaders that you may have heard of before. And he helps them do their marketing and figure out how to get their courses, their content, their ministry materials in front of people. So we have a lot to learn from him. You're going to love that conversation next week. 
Thanks, of course, to Wycliffe College for sponsoring this podcast. If you want to know more about what the college is, the college that I went to, the college I studied at, and the college that um, you know people come from all over the world to go to because it's such a world-class education, check out the link in the show notes below, wycliffecollege.ca slash wordmedigital. And as I said, they want to send you some free swag, so why not? And also, Compassion Canada. It's an honor to partner with Compassion in this work that they're doing uh, for children and on behalf of children through the local church around the world. There's all kinds of ways that you can get involved. Click on that link in the show notes, compassion.ca slash gifts. And we'd love for you to be involved in a small, a big way, whatever you're able to give can make a huge lifelong, even eternal difference in the life of a child around the world. All right, we want uh, to remind you again that there are tutorials from WordMade Digital coming out every week. They're on YouTube. They're going to be linked here down in the show notes. You can go to WordMadeDigital.com anytime and check out what we've got. Watch them, share them around. They're there to help you and to resource you for free. So uh, we just hope that they help. And also join us in the Facebook group. We will see you over there. And then we'll see you back here next week with Alejandro Reyes. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.